This is better than the Thai sequel version. Dude, I Nate played me this over the weekend, and this what has been lodged in my head ever since. Yeah, Ty Siegel's version is kind of cool. But uh, it's hot chocolate. Hot you chocolate. Hear his voice. Yeah, yeah, it's the yeah, same. Like, yeah. like the thing. Yeah. I've listened to this song, I think, probably 70 times in the last, like, 30 hours. This is awesome. Yeah, I would. I, this is getting added to my Spotify playlist. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, what up? Uh, yeah. Welcome to The License, uh, episode 44, Brian Pisano. That's me. I'm on, I'm on the podcast. And joining me. Who's with me, though? Uh, but I'm Leonard DeFranco. <laughs> there he Seamus. is. Seamus. Who else is here? Seamus. Seamus the dog. The so, Wonder Boy. Uh, the Wonder Boy. Lenny, I learned something today. Uh, this may have been part of my subconscious, but I realized as I was falling down an internet rabbit hole and Seamus was d- dropping his bone on the floor, uh, I was like, well, Mitt Romney's running for Senate. And then I was like, well, Mitt Romney also had a dog. And Mitt Romney put that dog on top of a car. And do you know what the name of that dog was? Seamus? It was Seamus. Seriously? <laughs> also, yeah. do you remember that that dog was like surprisingly big? That was not a small dog. No, it was like it was probably the same size as my Seamus, except it was a long-haired kind of like uh uh I think it was a poodle and I now I got or lab. It was like a red-haired, long-haired dog and it was it wasn't a poodle cuz it had straight hair. Uh, but it was some kind of uh it was a big dog. It was not messing around. It was like I mean, if you're gonna put plus dog, if you're gonna put a dog, dog on the roof, you want it to have long, luxurious hair blowing awesomely in the wind. Like that makes sense. Yeah, it, it was pretty pretty tight move by Mitt to do that. I also <laughs> didn't think I didn't think Mormons own dogs for whatever reason, but I guess they do. <laughs> I have this thing about certain religious groups. I just don't think they own dogs, but then I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, that's not one of that's not one of the random restrictions they have they've imposed on themselves uh, on behalf of God. Um, but yeah, uh, Mitt Romney is now going about to be a senator. Yeah. Um, do you think Utah should declare independence and secede? I think at this point we should just try to like figure out which states should secede. Well, there's the idea that there's like California, Oregon, and Washington could form Cascadia. I've heard that thrown around. That makes sense. Um, which is really Oregon and Do you think Washi- they would take Baja with them? That's a good question. Um, the so the entire just the entire west coast of yeah. mainland America. But then they'd have to take along British Columbia, too, and possibly Alaska, I feel like. That'd be awesome, yeah. Yeah, it'd be pretty cool. They would cool. totally take that. Are you kidding? That would be the, like, the dopest country in the world. But then, like, Alaska would be their their one, like, libertarian outpost. Like, that would be the most conservative, like, portion of the... I would accept the- it for America, Ch- Chile, America style. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, then it would, would then... And then I guess then the East Coast, like the Northeast Corridor, would fo- form its own like kind of hyper city state focused on like finance and <laughs> and real estate. It would uh, also be like you know ten square miles wide and like be one of the densest states in the union. Yeah, uh, but then like and then the Southeast would just form some kind of just like weird hot cesspit <laughs> of just like <laughs> and Hunger uh, Games, some football related Hunger Games, and and then like Kansas would just fall into be like the Democratic Republic of Congo, <laughs> but in America, <laughs> just like just like warlords, just like fighting over CC yeah, fly, like just decimating populations. Yeah, yeah absolutely, Missouri too. Um, anyway, uh, so in the race to govern this ungovernable land that we have. Um, we, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was uh, some pretty big news around these parts. Um, it was you were you were pretty, pretty shook by it. So, yeah, I, I Meg and I were sitting here um, just talking at the at this very table. And then I, lo- I got the little notification alert that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had defeated Joe Crowley for the Democratic nomination of the 
um, the fourth, right? Fourteenth, fourteenth, fourteenth district yeah. um, here in New York City, which covers uh, parts of the Bronx and Queens. And uh, I was like, whoa, that's insane. That's kind of like earth shattering. It was like, I really ha- thought she didn't have a chance. I, I thought she was going to pull more people than, than people had, than mainstream media pundit, punditry class had, had pegged her for. But, uh, but she just totally overthrew um, uh, a, a, an establishment part of the Democratic yeah, Party. Yeah, it's, it's number two in the, in the party. Um, or number two in the... Uh, Number two in the House of Representatives. Well, well, you were also at an equal kind of react. Didn't you have a, a? I I didn't. I was excited for her. I, I didn't think that it was that long of a shot. Um, I thought that like I had heard enthusiasm for her more than pretty much any local candidate in memory. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, way more than De Blasio. Yeah. More than Cynthia Nixon, even because this is much more much an easier lift. Yeah. Um, she's essentially already been elected now because she won the primary. It's a yeah. So it's a, it leans plus twenty nine in the Democratic <laughs> Party a favor. I mean that'd be a pretty hard shift. Still less partisan than Manhattan. Yeah, <laughs> which and is even more part, which is even more liberal. And the guy who she's running against is just a lawyer who is pissed off b- the way divorce law works and like that's how he got into politics because he got screwed over in his first divorce with his first wife. That's like <laughs> it, it's it's. I'll so make I, something out of myself. I show you, Cheryl. Yeah, it's just it's just a mad guy from Queens. Like it's just like that's just all it is. That, uh, well, which care, I mean, careful, let's, let's not underestimate those people. Yeah, there's a lot of mad guys in Queens. Uh, I'm I'm among them. I'm a mad guy in Brooklyn, but I stand with my mad other Queens <laughs> resident <laughs> brethren uh, brethren about how mostly we're just mad about how bad the Mets are, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so Alexandria Orcasio Cortez is a young 28-year-old. She actually was a year ahead of my sister at BU. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> a woman of color who I think is Puerto Rican, right? Yes. Um, and uh, she like, is natively from there. She currently lives in the district, unlike Joe Crowley. Hmm. And um, she is basically the one of the leading uh, exponents of the sort of DSA electoral movement. <clears throat> um, and... Uh, she has, you know, like there's the, the sort of famous uh, Sean Hannity uh, clip, uh, which shows, um, you know, like her platform and, and is supposed to be like pearl clutching. Like, can you believe that this communist is about to get elected? And it's like health care for all you, you jobs guarantee. That, you jo- know. that shows how bad they are at it. Like I even watched um, and maybe we can share the clip too. Tucker Carlson interviewed uh, Cornell West about her election and Tucker Carlson even looked like he was like, well, these all sound good, Doctor West, but like, I mean, what about Venezuela? And Cornell West just continued to own him. He's like, okay, look, you can't like that's an apples and oranges com- comparison that your network likes to use a lot. Um, yes, like Democrat, like trying to explain what democratic socialism is is like, yeah, oh, just because somebody espouses these views doesn't mean that like the Bronx is already going to devolve into a uh, place where people are just eating rats uh, to sustain themselves and mining Bitcoin for their from their free energy grid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, because they don't have free energy. <laughs> exactly. Um, they have to pay Con Ed for that service. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, so it was, but even Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity too with the putting the, up that image, they have a hard time fighting it because they're just like, well, you can't just give everybody what they want. And we're like, well, why not? Like, we're the country with the most resources on the planet. Like, why are we not e- exploring that? <laughs> I mean, I could, I could, you know, quibble with like, is a... How does a jobs guarantee work? Like, I mean, yeah. it's, there's are valid questions affiliated with them, but the idea that, um, you know, a lot of the things on that screen were, yeah, like universal health care and, um, you know, prison reform or, you know, yeah, ab- abolish that- ICE and like stuff that is pretty, 
it, if it's not already pretty standard for the Democratic Party, it's going to be soon. Yeah, it's well, crazy to me that like it, that's a lot of that stuff. It, like Bernie Sanders didn't call for the abolition of ICE, and it just goes to show how slow the part you know certain parts of the party are moving in something. Yeah, I think that well, that's what everyone's issue is that is that they finally had somebody, and I guess why the de- mainstream Democratic Party was like we we can't do that, and they were also the mainstream Democratic Party. They must have had. I tried to look for it. There was no published polls around where Crowley stood versus. Uh, Cortez, and I think they they had done polls, so they had hired a polling company to do it. They, I mean, he had fundraised a ton of money from, you know, all the 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 heavy hitters of corporate America, and uh and had outraised. Uh, I mean, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez essentially raised ten percent of what Crowley raised. Is she ra- raised three hundred thousand? He raised three million, and she still won. And so, like the p- mainstream corporate Democrats were like, "Well, obviously, money wins campaigns," which they, they haven't learned that lesson <laughs> at this point. And they're like, "Well, because because money wins campaigns, we we have because we have to cater to these corporations who are going to donate donate to us, and who are never going to espouse any of these things. Like a health care health insurance company is never going to espouse a candidate who says, uh, yeah, a universal health care coverage bill would make, basically make our business obsolete. So maybe we won't pay for that. It's not really a good business case to be made f- to pay for that this candidate who's going to um, abolish our our company. Um, uh, and so th- b- now they're just sitting there like, oh wow, they can win without money. And well, that's the th- so that's yeah. the kind of the question. That's like the th- the discussion worth having. And let's have it. Do you want to make this a nationalized conversation? The, oh, cue the music. Do we have music for nationalized no. conversation? <laughs> um, yeah, it's a na- let's nationalize Here. this conversation. Yeah. So like, I mean, that's the, that you know the Alexandria Ocasio Cortez victory was a big deal for people that are. Uh, obviously, you know, like we know a lot of DSA people. Are you? Do you consider yourself DSA? No, I support a huge part of their platform. I'd say, but I, I'm just a registered Democrat. I'm just a lowly registered Democrat. Do you? Th- do you consider yourself a Democratic Socialist? Uh, I don't know. This, and I think this is going to be what we talk about because I think I stand for a lot of so- Democratic Socialist policies. I certainly believe in a universal guarantee in healthcare. Um, I could I definitely get behind abolishing ICE and reforming the prison system, things I, I guarantee. I, I'm not, I guess the DSA turns me off where it turns into scenarios where there's like, oh, okay, well, we need to just completely move a profit, like a motive for profit in society in America or yeah, something like, like that. Yeah, like capitalism is a big, scary thing that's going to be hard to abolish. It's like, yeah. okay. Yeah. Good. Uh, yeah it, gets, it gets a little, that's the thing is that like, I think that's where it, it's hard that, you know, if we're um, sifting through, the if we're using our gold sifters to like take it, they try to get to the mud from the gold, it's that what turns me off from the DSA is there's a lot of people, a lot of people that are very purist about it and are very like, okay, the d- capitalism is the destructive force that. Um, well, they've become they've become kind of like a catch-all for everyone on the left, and also I, I don't know what the ca- I don't even know what the status of the DSA is like in, on the West Coast. I'm sure it's vibrant and strong and everything, but it seems to be like a pretty New York centric movement. I bet that, like, looking back on this era in politics, New York will be remembered as, like, you know, for, you know, like, Chapo and, you know, like, the Intercept is here. And, well, uh, I mean, but that's also, I mean, that's what it was. I mean, like, historically, New York history, New York, I mean, I mean, certainly in the 20s and 30s, New York was, like, a hotbed for labor movements and uh, and essentially moving I mean, we exported a lot of the people that were part of either whether it was Communist Party or Socialist movements during the Depression and stuff like that. They'd send a lot of 
uh, people out to mo- mobilize uh, union action, whether it was in California and the Orange Groves in California or in like, uh, you know, in Chicago. I mean, they coordinated with Chicago yeah. certainly a, lo- a lot in like unionizing uh, factory workers and that kind of stuff. There, and, um, but that stuff happened also I, everywhere. I mean, like the Haymarket riot happened in Chicago. It's, you know, Cesar Chavez was in Cal- California. Yeah. Um, Cesar Chavez and I, same birthday. Really? Yeah. Cesar Chavez and Al Gore. <laughs> nice. I yeah. share my birthday with Frank Sinatra and actress Jennifer Connelly. All right. Of Labyrinth and Beautiful Mind fame. Ooh. Beautiful Mind fame where she plays the wife of a man who in the movie is not a gay schizophrenic. <laughs> and anti-Semite. And anti-Semite. <laughs> who I saw at Fordham one time. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that co- you mean Russell Crowe or John Nash? No, John Nash. I oh, saw okay. John Nash. He gave a presentation at Fordham when I was there and I didn't understand any of it, but I went to go see him. Um, he also they filmed because they filmed part of Beautiful Mind. They did actually. Yeah. Want to hear a funny story about that? Um, when I was uh, in junior year, my roommate Mike uh, used to get really drunk and um, like at, he he loved Michael Jackson and he has kind of like Tourette's, so he would just go <laughs> and like <laughs> just like kick the wall. <laughs> and so by the end of the year, at first it was like, "Fuck, Mike, what are you doing?" Yeah. And there was like a hole in the drywall. And then by the end of the year, there was just like a number of holes in the drywall and nobody gave a shit anymore. <laughs> so anyway, the end of the year rolls around and we need to like fix this up so we don't get fined for it. So Mike's dad comes down from Westchester and he's just like this Italian guy and like a Dago team. Nice. Like he's like, all right, kid, kids, don't worry about it. And he just does this like super slapdash plaster job. I mean, like it was the best he could do, you know, again, the circumstances. But anyway, so we're helping him do the drywall. And uh, this is in Walsh Mm -hmm. and um, we're cutting out, you know, the section of of wall to replace. And what do we find? But the inside of this wall, this wall is already like three and a half inches thick. Okay, this is not a well-made, well-made wall from the outside. But in the inside, the stuffing of the wall was old, crumpled up copies of the ram newspaper what and it was not only that but it was i'm That's sure covered in like asbestos <laughs> yes. yeah oh my yeah. god and i unfolded it and the st- and this was taking place in you know 2009 this story and the um uh pete the newspaper said uh was dated from 2000 and it said beautiful mind set to film at rose hill nice <laughs> i was like holy shit all right. Well, they built that building as a project so that if the, if Fordham defaulted on its loan, Fordham oh, got yeah, a, a loan sense. from the city. It would just, and, they would just sell and it they back. Were, yeah, yeah, they're like, well, if you don't pay this back, we're going to turn this into public housing. So it's extra expensive to pay it back. Oh, man. I'm sure yeah. there was some like Mayor John Lindsay scam or something. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that, that's some, some great clever, stuff. Yeah. That's, we should do another episode on public housing because I've been reading a lot about it recently. But yeah. anyway. Um, so, okay, yeah. So, anyway. Um, what the hell are we talking about? We're talking about so we're talking about John Nash, and then we're talking oh yeah, about so uh, we're Jeffrey, oh yeah, you, Cesar Chavez, same, oh, different same birthday. Yeah. So yeah, so well, I guess so. New York loci of organizing. Yeah, yeah. So New York, I think I agree that like that New York City will be remembered in this time as a very leftward movement, um, which is good. I think uh, particularly it's just in reaction to kind of failed economic policies and a little bit of failed political campaigns of like centrist kind of people like Clinton, like Hillary and Bill Clinton. Um, and also just a failure to fall back uh, to kind of the stuff. I mean, th- I'm hold on reset. So it's a failure of those policies to deliver what people want in part, I think. Um, but I also think that what, what's being asked for isn't that radical. Like, I mean, R- Roosevelt, the guy from the depression that I referred to when there was a, a height of leftist movement in New York city going on. 
uh, he was asking for this stuff. So pe- people in the modern, certainly pundit class and media class, try to act like it's crazy to think that we'd have a universal health care or we'd have this uh, maybe even a, a federal election holiday or something like that, which are con- they would consider leftist movements where it's not that crazy. It's like it was that close to happening. And then he died. And then the war was over and America was able to benefit from just an unlimited expansion of its its empire uh, for a good, <laughs> a good portion of 30 to 40 years. And now it got because of that, they're like, well, this economic order in spite of everything, seems to generally be working for people. I mean, certainly not working well for certain classes of people, uh, like black people. And, <laughs> uh, or uh, people that are, like, naturalized immigrants that are getting kicked out of the fucking army because, like, they we're just... It's just... Well, we can get to that later, maybe. Yeah. Well, well that was the thing. I mean, th- that naturalization process was a great way to kind of, A, expand the American empire and expand more people into the fold. Now people are just, because of this resurgent xenophobia just getting rid i mean of that, like, the only thing i have to say about that is like it's i think that I, I i think a lot about in terms of the immigration debate about the legality of it because we've talked about this before on this podcast but like in other countries you have open xenophobia um you know in, in pretty much every country has their own version of it. there's yeah. a national nationalism often accompanies it but in this country nationalism what you know white nativism can or nativism uh can ally with the law and, and claim that it's just trying to enforce the law. Um, we mentioned this last time in this podcast when I was talking about the pardon of Joe Arpaio because he got convicted of breaking the law and Trump pardoned him, thus essentially, you know, legally, but like subverting the law, basically. Yeah. And the point is, is that that eliminates the claim to just enforcing the law, which is literally what they're still. I mean, even even in the in the depths of the child separation, the family separation crisis uh, of a couple weeks ago, they were still claiming we're here to enforce the law. You know, the fact that that rhetoric even works on any on any it doesn't work. You know, no one believes it. But the fact that they even can say that attests to how important the idea of legality is. And. Um, you know, what's happening now is uh, with, you know, that there are people getting kicked out of the military after having joined it with the promise to um, that it was going to offer a path to citizenship. They're trying to cut legal immigration by 25 percent. There is absolutely no legal justification for that, you know. And so it just at every turn, it subverts the claim, which is nominally a valid claim of, of just interest in legality. Th- their actions subvert the, the claim that it's just about legality. Right. Well, th- and I 100% agree it's with just that. It's like, well, and, y- and you and I, you and I agree that those are, that it's subversion of the law or it's subversion of what is claimed to be the law and it's using, using a prop essentially of, the, of what is the written law. And well, I'll, t- I'll tell you that because you could go talk to some of my relatives out in Peter King's district in, in <laughs> Nassau County and they're just like, well, I'm all for immigration, but I'm here, I'm here for it legally. Or it's like, or my ancestors came here legally it's like guess what when your ancestors came here it's like the idea of an identification card was like an a- abstract concept well, and they faced they faced xenophobia too but the point is, is they that did they but like they also were they're called wops because they're called without <laughs> papers like that was yeah. the whole idea that's like the root of the term <laughs> and like, also and also they, they had a way easier time assimilating i think that because the, yeah it, it, it was different but they did face xenophobia but the larger point is that why not skip the part where you hate the people coming in and just get to the part where you accept them as valid contributors to the society um, I kind of had a moment of clarity where I, because I was talking to my dad about this, and he was he was weakly trying to imitate the line about you know you can't have open borders and you know you can't just let anyone waltz in here. And it's like 
I was trying to kind of reconcile like, well, that is true, but what, you know, so what exactly do I find take issue with here? And I think the thing that I settled on was the problem is thinking that that's a priority. Like you have to be the mode, the idea that with all the problems and all the opportunities facing the world's most advanced economy and most powerful military power and everything, the, the idea that the main issue in a, in a, environment where the middle class is being has been eviscerated for the last like 70 years the idea that the main problem is foreigners is the idea of prioritizing it is what i take issue with if you want to enforce the law in a humane way i do think that there's like in an, in an ideal world you're probably going to have some deportations but you don't have to treat them badly you can offer them a you know you can you can tend towards path to citizenship and regardless of what the solution is um you can see them as fundamentally human beings uh ideally the, a solution would like try to shore up the situation like try to make central america a better place to live yeah and uh you know d- maybe invest there or something but uh yeah just the cool. idea of like prioritizing like if you like it's a fundamentally misdemeanor they're committing if you were to try to say that like speeding is a priority i would be like why do you think that, you know you have to justify why this is a legislative or a law and order priority uh, and that's the thing I take issue with. Yeah, uh, and that's the whole idea, right? Is that like, well, why aren't we thinking? And I mean, let's leave aside the f- fact that the United States has intervened in almost every Latin American country to ensure that, like, it, it it's kind of a hellhole. Uh, Everyone's a winner, baby. <laughs> Everyone's a winner, particularly if you are a right wing dictator in South America. <laughs> um, it, that's that's the CIA's uh, motto. Yeah. Um, especially not if you're Salvador Allende or um, anyone, any kind of Guatemalan left-wing movement or indigenous movement. Um, or a Guatemalan getting injected with syphilis just for the hell of it. Yeah, just, just, just for fun. Um, but so that, like, that's one point of examination is that like, people can't make the second leap to think that it's like, okay, like, well, why are people coming here, right? It's like, well, there's a couple reasons. Like the economic opportunity here. They, these people are clearly risking their lives. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't commit a crime and risk your life and risk the lives of your children like for their lives to be shittier. You wouldn't do that. Like so like are you or if you didn't even think there was a chance of that. Like uh, so the real question is that people have no empathy or the people that are not empathetic towards immigration or any kind of idea of immigration reform don't see that like well if just put yourself in that scenario and where you have no prospects and you have a family and it's like well, the only option is literally just committing a crime as it's seen to this other country where there's an outside chance you're just going to get locked up and sent right back here, but we're, we're going to give a shot for it anyway. But it's like they just don't see these people as human. I think it goes back to the racist uh, element to it. Yeah. It's like they're glad Joe Arpaio can run it or even worse, I'm, or worse or the same, Joe Arpaio can run a concentration camp in like 120 degree heat in the Arizona, or they can just put children in cages and be like, well, don't worry, we gave him a Nintendo Switch, it's fine. Like, they just like, we just threw him. I know he hasn't had a shower in two weeks and he hasn't seen his mom in like a, a month or so, and this kid's like four, but he has a Nintendo. That's like, mo- honestly, most American kids would kill for that shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, yeah. No, like, it, so I, I don't know. I, I think it's just a lack of, a lack of empathy or lack of understanding or lack of even understanding what uh, the whole thing is about and it's also being manipulated like by cynical politicians i mean we were talking uh earlier about like that it's very important to understand the effort to dehumanize everyone that's not white as part of a strategy that republicans are undertaking to reverse engineer a perpetual white electorate um and uh you know this is essentially the main thing they're trying to do is uh cast suspicion over everyone 
that is not historically a um, you know Republican voter. This is the only real chance. It's kind of funny. Like if you look back at the you know the autopsy after two thousand twelve that like Ryan's previous RNC commission, they you know that that was the great like untaken path of the Republican Party. It wasn't going to be good. They were still going to be craven. You know, playing from the same denying Merrick Garland playbook probably that they are now. But um, you know they they said like we should try to appeal to you know, maybe with ideology, appeal to, like, you know, minorities. For example, Latinos would love a lot of them to be conservative. You oh, know, yeah. like, they're very family values, very, like, hard work oriented. There's, I think there's a George Bush, George Bush or Ronald Reagan quote where it's, like, at its core, the Latin American American is a, a Republican voter. They're, like, yeah. very religious, conservative, like, bu- business-oriented yeah. people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they're yeah. just so fucking stupid, the, the electorate, and, and also the, like, the most of the people that are elected in Congress that are Republicans to have, they couldn't adapt to it. And so they had to just, now everything is, has been reoriented around. All right. So that new open Republican party is just not going to happen. So now we just have to make sure that essentially nobody ever feels like voting. That's not going to vote for us. And Jamel Bowie in, in that, uh, in an article that he wrote in slate, like I think it's called white flight. And, um, it's a really good primer on like the, the the, uh, Republican electoral efforts to, to keep, uh, minorities from voting and he points out that in the Jim Crow South no turnout was abysmal yeah. like it was suppressing everyone from yeah. voting yeah and a lot of white people like poor whites were kind of thrown in with the various restrictions that kept black people from voting but it was worth it because you're you know you're, you're essentially shaving down the electorate to what you can manage and uh yeah anyway that well, so it's it's why so to that point too it's i mean it circles back to i mean that that includes that's inclusive of i mean that's more of a class discrimination case of things and that's why they use they smartly i think even though it's horrible and uh, uh, they the, why the alexandria ocasio cortez platform is so abhorrent to the sh- to the sean hannity target audience or whatever is because it's essentially saying that like hey we're going to give these things away and you know who gets it those people get it and yeah, now totally. they're taking from you and giving it to them and then even though you already have this because even though white people don't have it even poor white people don't have it they perceive to have it it's like my aunt who thinks that she doesn't have socialized medicine but she's on medicare you know like and thinks she gets a choice i'm like you have medicare you have universal health care just for people over 65 and it's not because uncle joe paid his taxes or whatever it's because you just you have it healthcare yeah. and it's because it's a very popular program and you just don't understand how it works and because on its label it says you get it from united or blue cross blue shield but you know where the money from that comes from it comes from the new york new york state and the federal government so they, they just don't understand that all they see is that like uh-oh somebody else gets something that i already have and then that means i get less of that because they don't understand that it's not a, like a, a, a zero-sum game <laughs> I, I have an aunt and uncle who are like rabid republicans who hate the idea of any kind of public subsidy um and uh, yet they are very, I'm sure, jealous of their extremely generous uh, pension and like health care provided by his job as a city of Chicago worker. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like city of Chicago worker. I had to get in an argument with a family member. I know I'm using my family a lot as a prop <laughs> in this, but that's really the only point of reference because it just drives me nuts all the time. Who is a United States Postal Service worker and he doesn't he didn't understand how i'm like well we when i signed up for the postal service they gave you three plans i'm like yeah who paid your salary and who how'd you pay for those plans yeah i mean like the 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 main problem that democrats have to solve right now um is that they should never be beaten to uh that punch the idea that um this People are confused about where their benefits come from. People are confused about whether public programs benefit them. There should be no confusion. Um, 
the fact that right wing populists have been able to to make it seem like an illegitimate largesse on behalf of uh, you know working people towards people that are lazy is is it, it's it's really dooming the party and uh, you know that so when I see Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Um, you know, versus Nancy Pelosi or versus like the Democratic establishment, I see it as sort of like two separate problems. Um, one is the question of whether this is the direction, this sort of like radical left, uh, or you know, certainly compared to the mainstream direction, the party should go in. And the other is whether she represents a changing of the guard mm -hmm. and whether there needs to be th that, ha that has to happen. I totally think there needs to be a changing of the guard, if only because. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi, who is very transparently just clinging on to power right now. Did you hear her quote about how uh, someone said that Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is young, progressive, and um, a woman? Yeah. And Nancy Pelosi was like, well, I have two out of three of those. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, God. Yeah, no, you're not. No. Because you know why? Because when somebody brought up to you a couple months ago, it was like, what about a Medicare for All proposal that's gaining a lot of momentum? And she said, absolutely not. Not on the table. And... The fact that you can't do that or Chuck Schumer can't do that uh, is is ridiculous that like they just can't just sit there and just be like, be, I mean, be and, and Chuck Schumer's presiding over, you know, Joe Mankin and John Tester and these Senate Democrats that are going to confirm roll over for whoever the Senate, the uh, Supreme Court pick and is Doug Jones, too. And, you know, like, yeah. yeah and, yeah. and because, you know, as if as if. That's going to earn them brownie points in the eyes of Republican voters who fucking hate their guts. Th th there's, there's no fight. There's, these are not wartime consigliaries, as, as uh, uh, Jelani Cobb put it. Um, but anyway, so th I, that in terms of the changing of the guard and getting more passion into the party at, at its leadership, I totally think that Ocasio-Cortez and, and that style of really urgent expressing of the values of what progressives are standing for which is essentially the, the the motto of like just the civilized world like hey we have a huge reserve of cash that's not being tapped why don't we do that use that to make the entire society work better in a moral sense and also run more efficiently which i know is a, a, a thing that you've always said the the other question is whether the party should move uh, it, it tactically should move as far left as she is um you know the like I, the idea that we should jettison the Connor Lambs or the Doug Jones. I think that it's n it's still a little premature. Um, the one thing I want to say about this, and then, oh, then I'll be done. I think that it's important for us to recognize as liberals in a city in like the center of liberaldom that the Democratic Party is right now, it, the entire political spectrum is a, is a function of... Um, of, of set, pro, like dense city centers versus everywhere else. I should make the... Um, the show clip like that map that shows that the half half and half split of the electoral weight mm. it literally looks like it's like the entire country is you know republican and then just dots you know are are actually where all the liberal voters are located right and so the democratic party is now the mode of the city mm -hmm. um and it's you know leaning towards like actually you could even say that the democratic party is kind of f proof that the, the city model has worked so well that it's basically the, the 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 modality of it, like you know, a lot of regulation, uh, you know, diversity, um, you know, education, uh, you know, all the, all the types of things that work in a city setting is what the Democratic Party politics is aspiring to be. Mm. Um, and uh, I just think that like so much of the country is not that that it, we we try to enforce that on the entire party at our peril. I think it shouldn't move. I think that like I don't love Tom Perez, but like maybe they're onto something by knowing that 
there are other electoral fights to fight first, like fixing gerrymandering and stuff like that, before you can get to trying to impose the mode of the city on the rest of the country. So the, I agree with your sentiment that the American city is a model of democratic success. Um, I would say that bec- because the way that the electoral map is that everyone outside of those cities seems to be Republican it might be also a product certainly of ger- gerrymandering, but also a product of just like crappy urban design. Because if you think about not even just rural, if you think about suburban, suburban people generally live in all communities that are generally pretty homogenous, si- similar income class, whether it be poor, very rich or somewhere in between. Um, and they're all used to the same people. It's all, you can see a very smaller volume of people. You probably work with generally the same type of people that you are, whether it's from economic class or social class. If you work in the city, you are forced to acclimate. You would n- there's no way, possible way. And certainly there are city hicks like we could go to Staten Island <laughs> and, and like certain parts of Brooklyn and Queens um, and find uh, very kind of right leaning people but even then staten island is very like based on homogeneity and it's very segmented in a way that keeps people separate um if you work in an environment if you work with anybody that's an immigrant or a recent immigrant you'd probably realize that they're the hardest working people that you work with i guarantee you as not as one of the people where i i work uh I'm I the p- I'm always outshined by the people that are just <laughs> recent immigrants to this country who do a great job when work way, way harder than I do. So like I, that is and are of every race, color, and creed, and from different diverse areas of the country, um, and uh, and of the world. I mean, uh, so so that kind of goes out the window. So urban design kind of forces people into these spaces for a lot of reasons for modern life that I think allows you to be more creative, more accepting or empathetic of other people's struggles. You have to see a lot of time, like you, you can get separated from poverty a lot in the suburbs, I think in rural areas or not even observe it. Like you, like you don't, you're not confronted with the idea of like homelessness or like inequality, general inequality. Totally. And, yeah. And yeah. So there, I mean, the whole point of them is that they're curated, you know, essentially kind of like utopias for, you know, but, but, yeah, but they're but, also so the, they're also the epicenters of like, the opioid. Well, that, that's <laughs> not. I wouldn't. Yeah. Say, I said it's like more. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. I, I would say, I'll or take, any kind of. I was gonna say like rural, but, but I mean like. That's well, there's also the centers of any kind of Zoloft prescription. You know, yeah, those people. Are, like, yeah, I mean, not to say that people yeah. in the city are not necessarily less uh, susceptible to mental illness, but it's just, I'm just saying it's like there's a there's clearly a massive problem, and I think yeah. we give credit part of it to the way our communities are designed. Um, okay, so do you think that like the um, so my point is that I think we should be cautious about trying to too quickly impose some the the politics that that makes sense to city people on a country that's not all that urban it's urbanizing um but it's not that urban uh on the whole and you're saying that the the design of the places where a lot of those people live is the problem i'm, do you, I'm saying do you think d- they're better d- partially design i think partially designed and i also think it's partially language. So maybe it's not so much policy as I think people see it in those communities that are maybe tightly knit or smaller amounts of people. They're like, well, I already do this stuff. I already participate in a society that like I would give somebody money if they needed it. Or so that's like what I see it as, whereas opposed to it's like, Hey, or they see it, they, they see a lot of government as intrusion on their community and they see any kind of universal program or federally mandated program as like a, a red tape that's coming in. Uh, red communist tape that's coming in to ruin to either cut into their bottom line that's already probably razor thin whether they're running a small business or whatever and so they're they're, they're immediately rejected by it whereas like they the language they should be speaking to those people is like you're getting screwed over 
you this program will help you in the long run and figuring out how i'm this sounds very paternalistic and that's not what they like so I, i'm from an urban area so i can't really figure out what what that language would be but somebody from that community has to step up and be like okay realize like the, the bottom line is like oh actually if we had a universal health care program or some kind of universal guarantee of of jobs it would serve our community in this way also just like i think that the the language that works there is like freedom and, and sovereignty you right know, like don't you want to be free of having to do a job for some prick right you know like just just so you can get your glaucoma taken care of or whatever yes like or you know in terms of um you know, like uh, corporate ownership by employees or stronger workers' rights or something. It's like, why do you want these assholes to control your life? Don't you want to control, you know, or, or localize control among the people that you interact with? All You know, the language of sovereignty, I think, could be. But the but this gets back to our main our main grievance, which is that the regardless of what the politics are, even moderate progressivism of the kind that Nancy Pelosi would be very comfortable with, maybe less corporate inflected but that should be enough argued passionately argued cogently argued urgently to captivate uh enough people to get some sort of like electoral momentum going and at least reverse the the losses that that progressives have, su have suffered in state houses you know there, there it should not be you know the democrats are probably always going to be kind of like the mets slash white Sox of the country you know like they're always going to be a little bit on the on the fringe you know but then we're going to have every decade we're going to have a crazy run <laughs> and <laughs> everyone's going to be yeah. like can you believe this is happening <laughs> <laughs> just yeah and like it's exactly and then and then if, uh, they come back and trump is like the, the cubs winning the world series which was totally crazy happened the same year and was horrible yeah um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like you know, there, there. I think there's there is something inherent to the American psyche that's very big on you know guns and rootin' tootin', you know, freedom and stuff like that. And that's always and, and Jesus, you know, the religion thing is totally. We're not even touching the religion thing and the racism thing. I, honestly, but I think the de what Democrats would do well to do is get more religious. I think and not necessarily. No, I, don't, uh, I think I, I don't want that. Not necessarily religious, but I would just say like, look, engage in a level of. I, I mean. There, there are liberal elements to like Catholicism and There's other. Uh, the, all of all of fucking all of Christianity is the most. There, there is yeah. no one. There is no politician in America that's as, as radical as Jesus was. Brian, I have some good news for you. Yeah. Oh, you got the good news. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to deliver some words? Yeah. yeah. No, I just. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a, like a a practicing Christian by any means, but like truly, it just goes to show you how useless the concept of you know, lip service to Christianity is that any Christians call themselves Republicans. I mean, it's, yeah. it is so clearly about, I mean, historically it was a movement that happened that, that was uh, basically took off because it was empowering poor people. Um, but you know, in terms of beliefs, it's also, there's no real question about whether you should give sacrifice for the poor and, you know, help families and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I just think that I think liberation theology could go a long way in, in, in a way of explaining to poor people or in like explaining that like th their religion is in this context is, is all about like kind of being part of community and helping each other rise up out of that. And that's kind of the message of, of their religion. I think it would be a strong, I mean, this is the more cynical end of it, political tool, because I think what, oh, what already alienates these people is that they just see us as a bunch of champagne socialist liberals that drive around our New York, fancy New York city, go to our loft parties and, you yeah, know. no, that's <laughs> true, and it, and they're and they're right to the right to resent us for those things. But I think people ultimately now, especially our generation, is so sensitive to bullshit, um, and you know, part of the reason that ridiculing thoughts and prayers 
is so effective after a gun crime, after like a big gun shooting. Uh, <laughs> what's it? What's it called again? <laughs> the big gun. Big, big gun. Shoot him up. <laughs> um, is that it's is that we know it's bullshit. We know it's empty. We know we know no one's yeah. praying for them. Or you know most of the politicians that are saying that are just tweeting it. And they're not actually praying. If they actually believe that it, it might be different. So I, I don't know. I'm I'm resistant to the idea that like going the route of you know Democrats pretending to be all you know flag waving jingoistic Christians is the, is the solution. But I do think that maybe focusing on you know economic gains over cultural gains could help. Yeah. Uh, but then again, I also think that risking, you know, you if you really risk embracing a part of the electorate in exchange for jettisoning hard-won cultural gains um, in other areas, I think you're you're giving up a lot. Yeah. And I don't know if it's worth it, but I, I don't think you'd have to give up either. I, I think the, the people that are going to be in the cities are going to vote hard left, and then the people you could you could just win over uh, uh, people in the, in those more rural or suburban areas, being like, you have a moral obligation to do this. <laughs> like this is just you're you you can like kind of finally see the outcome of this. I maybe it's a long shot, but I think I mean it's not working now. Whatever their strategy is, we're not working now. And if they want to speak their language, they're going to have to come to them on the term. Uh, they're already. I don't know if they're going to stop being religious. Yeah, it it is there. It is Brian. It is. It's all of our duties to help our fellow, fellow brother men. It is Bro- yeah. our brother mans and brother and brother, brother LGBTQIA plus and sister brothers and people of every kind. So we got a short little episode this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and to help you enjoy it even more, um, uh, we're gonna get taken out by the sweet sounds of everyone's winner. Should, should we also should we announce the the fiftieth episode? Um, uh, later this summer, August 18th, Saturday, in Brooklyn, we are hosting a live episode of Infinity License. Infinity License live, folks. L. 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 For our 50th episode, we are doing it IRL. I-L-L. So episode L, take the L. We're doing it at Bluebird in Brooklyn, which is on Flatbush Avenue. Uh, right by Prospect Park, and we would love any listeners to come out. We're going to have a couple guests. We're going to have some food. We're going to have some drinks. Uh, it's going to be a party, and we're going to drink it up and celebrate 50 episodes of The License. So yeah, we'll have a lot more information coming after that for, for y- y'all after that. But We're going to uh, post it to Facebook. Share. Please join. Share with your friends, and, uh, and it should be a fun time. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that about wraps this up this week. Brian? Uh, ready? Take it easy. Oh, you take it easy, buddy.